singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and download it or listen to it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better in one of several ways. Uh, you can go to iTunes and write a brief review for the show. You can click the like button on YouTube. You can leave a comment, or you can simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show would be Professor Robin Hansen. Robin Hansen is a very well-known associate professor of economics at George Mason University, as well as research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University. So, without further ado, uh, and by the way, he has a, an incredibly much longer biography which a with a huge list of many, many accomplishments, but for brevity, I'm just abbreviating <laughs> here. So, uh, welcome, Robin, and uh, thank you for spending some time with us today. I'm delighted to be here. I'm looking forward. Fantastic. So, Robin, you have a very interesting and very eclectic background. Um, so, I am usually interested not only in what my guests do, but I'm interested in why they do it and how they got to be interested in doing it in the first place. Because I think that uh, the messenger is part of the message, so to speak, and I think that they do bear relevance to each other. So, I'd like to ask you this. How did you get to be interested in, in economics um, and technology, and which one was first and which one was the second? Well, I'm afraid it's a pretty long history. I was a physics major in college, then I went to grad school and decided I wanted to study philosophy of science. I sort of thought I answered the basic questions there that I had for myself quickly, so then I went back into physics, and then I got stars in my eyes about cool things happening in Silicon Valley. There was artificial intelligence research and hypertext publishing research, so I went off to Silicon Valley with two masters in philosophy of science and physics. I spent nine years there doing AI research as my job and uh, hypertext publishing and other things on the side. And in the process, I realized, I mean, I hung out with science fiction people. I hung out with Eric Drexler and the Xanadu Nanotech people and got interested, got interested and became a cryonics customer. And uh, hanging out with tech people, you know, I... I I was really excited by the vision of hypertext and what people thought it could do, and then I realized I started to have doubts about whether their vision would actually work the way they said, and that's why I started to invent uh, an alternative approach to solving the same problem. They wanted to sort of make conversation and uh, intellectual consensus more robust by having backlinks that people could find criticism, mm -hmm. and I realized that maybe betting markets would do a similar function uh, because I was hanging around basically rabid libertarians. <laughs> And uh, Max Moore was one of them. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I, I sort of invented an alternative approach to solving the same problem based on betting markets, and that was part of a whole stream of trying to invent alternative institutions to solve problems. Uh, and then I basically decided to make that into a career by going back to school and getting a PhD in social science uh, at, at Caltech, and then I finally became a professor in uh, economics. And so uh, my, my route was involved in sort of an idealistic, visionary, et cetera, future-oriented community, thinking about all the problems that would come up with technology and how to solve them, and, and often knowing a lot more about technology than about social science. And I, I dug into social science and finally decided I'll make it my career. So 
so um, let me ask you this then. What is the major motivation? What inspires you to do the work that you do then? What's the, the goal that you're chasing after? What's the big question that you're sort of trying to, you know, open the door on? I'm excessively diverse, so academics are usually rewarded best if they focus on one thing and become the world expert at that and spend their whole time on it. And that's very hard for many of us to do, and mm-hmm. I was borderline of not succeeding enough, focusing enough, so I've honestly done a variety of areas. Uh, my blog, if you'll notice, I've focused on hypocrisy and, and human nature. I've, I've done stuff on prediction markets and have a sort of lead, leadership role in that in the new industry. And this later, this latest project is about uh, the economics of emulations, and so I can't really tell you that they're inter- they have an integrated <laughs> they have an integrated theme behind them. Uh, they they are kind of diverse, uh, but I, I think fundamentally, I'm drawn toward things that seem important and things that seem like they matter, and I get irritated and uh, intolerant of people who just seem to follow some academic trend that doesn't seem to matter, doesn't even have much of it implications. On the other hand, there's just some things that are cool and that, that's intrinsically attractive and I'm making a compromise. I'm, I'm, if I just make myself focus on the thing that intellectually seems most important, it won't happen because I can't make myself do it. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, if I just do things that are interestingly per se cute, I, I will feel like I'm not doing something important. So I, I've chosen these things as a compromise. So I, I chose this current uh, book project on uh, economics of emulations as a compromise between the things that I thought were pretty important and what seemed cool and fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I have to say, I really appreciate it. I've been um, uh, allowed to read an early draft of your um, uh, sort of uh, ongoing book project on the economics of emulation, and I will bring um, a few questions later on during our discussions. But before that, I want to ask you this. Don't you feel that there's some kind of a contradiction between the physicist and the economist? I mean, I I personally have a very good friend of mine who is an engineer and who often points to me that philosophers are all bullshitters because, you see, engineers, you can go and see what they do. You can touch it. You can see it. You can feel it. If it falls down, you know the guy didn't have any idea what he was doing. Whereas philosophers and so-called social scientists, they usually build, you know, you know, stuff in the sky that you cannot prove or disprove wrong often with empirical observations. And it's, it's, it's all sort of vague and, and basically bullshit, as he put it. <laughs> and, and physicists are very much hardcore scientists, right? Sure. Absolutely. Like, like engineers. That was the culture I grew up in, of course, the hardcore physics culture. So I w- was taught to have the impression that if only we physicists would go over to economics or biology or something, we could clean it all up in a week or two because, you know, we were just rigorous, smart people and they were all mushy headed. Yes. Uh, but of course we didn't because we were so fascinated with physics. Um, and, you know, when I did start to explore and go to other areas, I found I was just wrong. Uh, there are lots of other things other people know and lots of insights they have that physicists don't know and their tools aren't even necessarily well suited for. Uh, I, you know, I, there's it's sort of like an ideology uh, that people have. You know, when you learn a, f- a few methods, you say, aha, I can see. Yes, you could be mushy-headed or you could follow these methods that I've learned and you could see the methods that I've learned would be more reliable and useful than those mush- than just being mushy-headed. And then you assume that everybody in the world who doesn't follow your headed, your methods must be mushy-headed. Mm-hmm. That's about all there is in the world. But in fact, most academic areas 
most academic areas have methods that are appropriate to their area and do produce insight over time. Mm-hmm. I have criticisms of different areas, but I, for the most part, if I want to learn something about social psychology, I pick up their textbooks. If I want to learn about uh, how foragers live, I pick up anthropology books and journals, etc. I'm happy to defer to most experts on most things. <laughs> so there is merit in, in doing social science and perhaps even philosophy. Absolutely. I've, I've done philosophy, actually. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this uh, parallel question, though. Why, do you think that there is a kind of a similar attitude within academia with respect to the singularity, the technological singularity in general? Because it seems to me that there's not too many academics, philosophers, let alone economists. I mean, you're almost entirely unique uh, or have been for a very long time. And only recently we have a little bit more interest from certain academics in the field. But generally it's been sort of considered almost to be a fringe issue or a concept. It's something I've puzzled over for a long time. Um, there's a bunch of interesting things going on. Uh, one obvious thing that's going on is that uh, academia, academics are primarily selected and uh, chosen and ranked on the basis of doing impressive things with difficult methods. And uh, so they need to sh- constantly show their high standards by looking down on people who are doing things with easy methods or uh, methods that you know aren't as difficult as what they use. So... Uh, Academics, if you know, the future often seems to be done, futurism seems to be done with crude methods or seat of the pants methods or qualitative methods. And those just don't look so hard to the uh, people using these other methods. And they, they want to st- distinguish themselves very clearly and say, no, 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 I'm doing something different. Mm-hmm. There's just a, a way in which there's a lot of topics out there that are innately interesting to ordinary people. And uh, produce a lot of sort of amateur intellectual of uh, talk and, and action, and academics are constantly trying to distinguish themselves from, acad- from amateurs, and so, in a sense, they need to stay away from topics that are interesting to amateurs unless they are very clearly doing it via a different method. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially there's a lot of topics that are seen silly to ordinary people. <laughs> to them. And for those, academics need to be especially clear to be doing it a different way. So, for example, you know, Aliens is, is a wonderful example. You know, aliens are a vivid concept. They engage ordinary people in a deep way. People are eager to talk about them. And because of that, academics are really eager to distinguish themselves and say, no, 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 I'm not like those people. And if you, if it's, so if an academic is going to do anything related to aliens, it has to be with a very clearly academic method that's the sort that an ordinary person couldn't use. They have to have a big, expensive radio telescope or a complicated math model or something like that. Otherwise, they should stay away. And even then, they have trouble often. Uh, you know, the old Proxmire cutting the uh, funding for, for a SETI. Mm-hmm. Um, to ordinary people, it seems silly. And why were these people doing something so silly? Mm-hmm. So... Um... So let's let's move on our discussion a little bit here more uh, towards uh, economics here before we narrow it even further down to uh, prediction markets, which is uh, your uh, um, fame uh, and um, expertise, I would say, for sure. Um, so tell me in a, in a couple of words, what is the science of economics? What does it do and what, what's the goal and purpose of it? Um, in academic areas are mainly divided up according to topic, uh, the topics you're studying. Uh, they tend to collect, 
collect different methods that are more appropriate to those topics. Sometimes they collect a method that's inappropriate, of course. I'm not saying all methods are always appropriate, but on average, they tend to collect appropriate methods. And economics has collected a set of methods that are more appropriate for social science compared to, say, physics. There are a number of social sciences, and economics tends to focus on a different set of methods than some of the other social sciences do. So, for example, historians and, and many sociologists often like immerse themselves in the detail of some particular area and then um, write a lot about that detail and in a somewhat qualitative relative to a you know, math, math, mathematics way, but often with careful attention to detail with a rich vocabulary of concepts to make distinctions. Um, and uh, they often get deep insight into the concrete specific thing that they, they study. Uh, economists, relative to that, are focused more on abstractions, uh, on abstract concepts that can apply in a wide range of contexts, even if they don't apply in any one context that well, on mathematical modeling of those abstractions, uh, of putting together formal models uh, as a way of testing out whether a set of concepts is coherent. So is it fair to say that uh, the definition that comes to my mind from my day back a few years ago when I was taking economics one-on-one was... Uh, the science uh, or economics is concerned with the best, most efficient allocation of resources in the context of scarcity. That's the kind of phrase people put in textbooks, but I don't think it buys. <laughs> you don't buy it? Well, it's not that it's wrong. It's just uh, not right. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate a little more on that? Uh, economics is basically studying human behavior uh, in social context on Pretty much all social behavior seems to be fair game to economists. Of course, a lot of human behavior has scarcity involved, but it's not necessarily the central concept being used. Mm -hmm. Because I, I would like to posit, and I, I want to, the reason why I wanted to bring in that definition is because um, I want to uh, delve deeper into it later on. Uh, and I would like to posit that the way our global e economy is structured right now is entirely directed with respect to scarcity. The fact that we live in a material world with finite resources and very much in a context of scarcity. Uh, I'm happy to grant that uh, a lot of economics relies on scarcity as an important element in um, making predictions, but I'm also happy to, to endorse the usual claim that, in fact, in almost all social contexts anybody's ever been in, scarcity has an important element, and in fact, in almost all imaginable future contexts, scarcity will be an important element. So, mm -hmm. But I would like to challenge that. That's why I'm setting you up sort of in, in this way, because I, I'd like to to discuss later on the implications of potential abundance and and augmented in virtual reality where, you know, normal economics principles, as I believe them, uh, would not be holding true, precisely because the element of scarcity will be taken out of the equation. Uh, but before we get there, let me, uh, let me uh, ask you to share a little bit more about prediction markets. So uh, what are prediction markets? What's the idea behind them? And how useful or what are they going to be useful for? Well, um, the problem is that we often want to know things. Uh, we want, want to know uh, the chance that global warming will produce a certain sea level rise if we don't cut back on carbon emissions. We might want to know whether, uh, you know, uh, vaccinations are causing an increase in autism. We, as a firm, you might want to know whether you're, uh, you'd increase sales if you lowered your price or your project would be more likely to come undone if you changed who's in charge of it. There's a lot of context where we want to know things that, 
we want a mechanisms where that draw from the people who could find things out to collect it together into some consensus that you can use to make decisions about. Uh, we have many institutions of society that, that function in part to do this, including polls and academic committees and journals and um, chat rooms and things like that. Uh, but we want a mechanism to do that, and it turns out that speculative markets are a remarkably effective mechanism for doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, they are underused and could be used much more widely to effectively um, give us our best current answer to uh, whatever question you want. So give, give us a couple of uh, examples where you believe that it would be very beneficial to implement uh, uh, prediction markets. Uh, there are prediction markets within firms at the moment that uh, estimate like whether a project will be done on time. So if you actually want to know whether you're going to be finished with your project on time, it can be spectacularly more accurate <laughs> source to um, ask the people on the project to anonymously bet in the market about whether they'll make the project deadline and other people associated with it. Mm -hmm. Ask the, the official person in charge of the project who's who looked bad if it's late to whether the project's going to be late. Mm -hmm. That's one concrete example in organizations, but at the larger social level, uh, you know, for example, on global warming, it would be great to have markets on global warming on the probability of various sea level rise, temperature rise, and how those would depend on various changes, or even on uh, geoengineering, the consequences of that. Those would all be extremely valuable uh, markets. Okay, so let me take the second example because I think it might be in some ways easier for people to understand. At least it's easier for me in some ways. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what would be the benefit if, say, uh, people start betting and say somebody would say, well, there will be a half a meter rise of sea level versus a one meter rise of sea level. What would be the concrete benefit rather than uh, the general assessment that, you know, things are looking bad, that sea level are going to rise, whether it's half a meter or a meter, it's not so important. The important thing is to start mitigating or thinking about mitigating and taking action right now, for example. So, for example, uh, at the moment, there's been a long-running policy dispute about whether unilateral action by the United States, for example, would shame or induce follow-on actions by other nations. Like India and China, for example. So a betting market could directly estimate whether or not a unilateral action by the United States would, in fact, produce follow-on actions by these other nations. Uh, you could get a conditional probability that India or China specifically will adopt some um, policies or just about their total emissions conditional on our making some policy change. And what's the benefit of getting 40% conditional probability that they would follow such action? The policy disputes is often framed in terms of those probabilities. Uh, one side says, uh, this is our best chance to do something, and the chance is substantial. And another side says, this is hopeless. Uh, don't waste your money. They're so, never going to do it, in other words. Right. So, so you'll never needs a number. <laughs> so you think it's, it's kind of like a tool uh, which can be adopted by decision makers, by policy makers, by governments, to sort of game out the potential outcomes or the probability behind the potential outcomes behind specific decisions that they can take about the future. It's a way for anyone who wants to know to have a source to go look to, to defer to and say, I haven't studied this, but those people have strong incentives to study it and give an accurate answer. And so it's a, I will just go look at that source and trust it. 
So I want to uh, talk to you a little more about two cases of prediction markets and what do they have to say about uh, them. So the second one is the technological singularity. But the first one I want to bring in is the uh, allegedly buried or perhaps recently revived project called Total Information Awareness, uh, which emerged probably about 10 years ago or so when I was in um, university. And I think it was led by General uh, Poindexter. And very quickly, they even have, they put up a website and so on. And, and very quickly, everything was sort of supposedly scrapped down and, and so on. And the idea behind it was that um, people would be able to bet on, uh, uh, on future things like, for example, terrorist attacks. Like, for example, the murder of uh, potential uh, heads of state and things like that. Let me just pause you. Uh, the Total Information Awareness Project was not a prediction market project, and it was not designed to do that. There was a project called the Policy Analysis Market, which is closer to what you're describing. Uh -huh. 2003, the Policy Analysis Market was um, uh, became publicized and immediately killed, and then there was a long stream of publicity after it. Mm hmm that was in July of 2003. Poindexter was a uh, up the hierarchy above that project in DARPA. He was also up the hierarchy of, of the Total Information Awareness Project. Uh, many people at the time were aware of the Information Awareness Project and concerned about it, mm -hmm. trying some way to uh, find a way to, to uh, kill it or, or to embarrass it. And so uh, some uh, senator's aides went searching through the DARPA hierarchy to find uh, the policy analysis market project, which was related to, which was both also under uh, Poindexter, and they managed to use that project to embarrass the administration, to get Poindexter fired, and to get total information awareness moved. <laughs> it left where it was and moved somewhere else, uh, but the policy analysis market was killed. So the policy analysis market was actually a, a market on geopolitical events in the Middle East. It was mm -hmm. intent to talk about particular nations and their economic trends, their political trends, and how those those depended on each other. That is, if the U.S. moved more troops into uh, Iraq, how that would affect uh, Iran, how that would affect uh, Syria, etc. So were you associated in any way with any of these two projects, or was your work being used directly or indirectly by them? I was a chief architect of the mechanisms behind the policy analysis market. Um, Mm -hmm. Chief architect. Yes. Very interesting. So I, I actually should have gone back and, and prepared a little more in depth. I was not aware of that detail. That's very interesting because it's been 10 years since I've been reading on that and it's uh, largely gone. But so do you not think that, um, and, and you said that that's the project that kind of fits closer to my description that I gave about terrorist attacks and people being murdered and so on. So the, the market was mainly about geopolitical events. The problem was um, that we were talking about all the different events we could have in the Middle East and thinking we should have a miscellaneous category. So we were going to have a structured set of standard questions about each of eight different countries in several quarters into the future. We thought we should also have some miscellaneous questions that wouldn't fit into that structure. And then we had a, a demo website, a sort of a background screen above our call for beta testers. And that background screen had a miscellaneous section. And in that miscellaneous section, it said North Korea missile strike and Arafat assassinated. Mm -hmm. That was the basis for the claim that we were creating a market on terrorist attacks. But uh, the principle should be the same, shouldn't it be? Because uh, 
just like whether you fire a CEO or not, uh, uh, could be perhaps predicted, uh, whether you should fire a CEO or not could be or should be perhaps best predicted by those prediction markets. Prediction market could have done a decent job at forecasting whether Arafat would be assassinated, also could have done a decent job of forecasting whether our, say, moving troops into Syria would increase the likelihood of Arafat being assassinated. Mm -hmm. But do you not think that there could be a very strong conflict of interest where, uh, you know, people can sort of rig the market in so many ways to benefit from, say, murdering um, somebody, heads of state or, uh, or conducting terrorist acts and then benefiting from those prediction markets, so there materially are speaking? Many kinds of uh, illicit behavior you could imagine, but we have to go through them one at a time to, to talk about each one. Uh, they're, they're really quite different. Mm -hmm. Sabotage is uh, when you would go take an action in the real world in order to influence what happens and then bet on the fact that you know the real world better because you know what you're going to do in it. Mm -hmm. uh, sabotage is, is something that all of our financial markets are in principle subject to. Uh, so, for example, you could go damage the product, product of any firm of, say, Starbucks coffee, mm -hmm. reasoning Starbucks coffees somewhere. Mm -hmm. People die in having the stock price of Starbucks fall. Mm -hmm. uh, available to most everyone to do it any time. Uh, it's surprisingly rare action. In fact, uh, you know, the 9-11 attacks, people afterwards immediately thought, well, somebody, mu those people must have known to sh sell short uh, or stock options on the airlines because the airline stock went way down right after the attacks. Mm -hmm. The 9-11 Commission looked in great detail at that. They did not find that behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually extremely rare for people to do things like that, which says basically that it's hard to put together the willingness and ability to take an action like that with the financial capital to take advantage of it in, in a uh, substantial way. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to think about it. It would be much smaller amounts of money at stake, so that there'd be far less to gain by uh, doing something wrong and then trying to gain money in the market. You might as well, might as well go try to poison Starbucks if you're going to try to make a lot of money by sabotage because uh, you could make millions of dollars there, whereas in these prediction markets we're talking about, you could make $1,000. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to say I feel uh, very unprepared to uh, to conduct our interview with that slant of a discussion because I was not aware you were among the chief architects behind it, and I should have been. So, um, uh, I, I, yeah. So perhaps it might be better to move on to to other issues. Um, even though I have to say that intuitively speaking, perhaps I might be with the majority with people who have a number of very serious issues with that kind of uh, mechanisms uh, to see the future or to, uh, to gauge it. So let, let's bring it to, to a more familiar concept perhaps uh, for the majority of our audience, which would be the technological singularity. How would prediction markets uh, be helpful with respect to that? Um, prediction markets uh, give you incentives based on winning bets or winning your trades. Um, they tend to work better uh, in the sense of giving stronger incentives when events will resolve in a short term. Then you can make your bet and win it and then turn around and make another bet and win it, etc., and accumulate gains over time. Mm -hmm. Are going to bet over a very long run, uh, you can't do that so much. So the incentives are weaker for longer-term bets. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the incentives are weaker for all sorts of pundits talking about the long-term for exactly the same reason. So I'd still argue that prediction markets give you better incentives 
than the alternative institutions for encouraging pundits to speak honestly about the long run, but they are still going to be weaker. Uh, so we could basically have betting markets on long-term outcomes. Uh, as an example, uh, we have uh, long-term markets in government bonds. So government bonds, you know, there are like 30-year bonds often. And that means that uh, if you buy those bonds, you're betting on the, that government over that time scale. You could, we could create, create, for example, a long, very long-term uh, agricultural commodity futures, wheat futures, for example. Mm-hmm. And if you thought, say, that food prices are going to go through the roof soon and nobody's doing anything about that and that's a problem, then you could bet in the wheat futures market and simultaneously buy yourself some future wheat in order to ensure yourself that you have the food that you need and signal to everybody else that future prices will be higher uh, by raising future wheat prices. If, if the market said that you know wheat prices in 20 years are going to be 10 times current wheat prices, that would be a big signal to policymakers, hey, there's a problem with future wheat supply. Uh, something needs to be done. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. But similar things about singularity related topics too mm-hmm. but don't you uh, don't you worry that uh, people can try to again manipulate that market I'm just thinking from this point of view okay we're not operating in in, a, in an environment of perfect competition which is usually assumed by most economists for for most of their tools to, to work we're not operating in an environment of perfect information awareness either. And, and say, for example, I come originally from Bulgaria. I, I had a very good friend of mine who is a professor of business uh, in Bond University in Australia, who, who used to be a foreign exchange trader in Malaysia. And he was sharing with me uh, that, you know, he, he made a lot of money uh, doing it and, and, and how easy it was to manipulate the whole market there, right? And the same thing that I observed in Bulgaria, by the way, right? So if you're talking about, say, manipulating the U.S. dollar, that could be extremely hard, right, because everybody trades in U.S. dollars. But if you're talking about the U.S. dollar versus the Bulgarian lev or versus the Malaysian currency, then the, 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 the number of players is relatively limited, um, and each of them has their own agenda, and some of them have enough force and enough power to sort of send the wrong signals uh, long-term signals, which allow them to benefit greatly in the short term and make basically fake prediction and get get the benefits out of it. There's, there's lots of details we can go into, but the two general things to say are that, first, we have a lot of empirical comparisons. We have a lot of cases where there were, on the same topic at the same time with similar resources, two different institutions forecasting the same thing. And Consistently over time, when one of those is a speculative market, it almost always does about the same or substantially better than the alternative institution. So in foreca- when we're comparing in forecasting to uh, committees, to polls, to uh, expert panels, to uh, a wide range of other institutions, consistently the, the speculative markets have done better. Uh, that's the empirical basis. Now, now we can talk theoretic- lots of theories about why exactly that's true. Um, but the key point is that we have to compare one real institution with all its imperfections and to another real institution with all its imperfections. So uh, w- if people can try to manipulate one institution, they can also try to manipulate another one. So the question isn't, can we have an institution with, with perfect people or with people who have perfect interests? 
but how robust are these institutions resisting those influences? And speculative markets are remarkably robust at resisting those influences compared to the other institutions available. Well, wouldn't you say that, uh, for example, the, the, the housing market bubble in the U.S. or the derivative uh, bubble, which, by the way, those two are, of course, very much related, um, sort of failed to do their job, if you will, uh, in the sense of predicting that it was totally inflated and unrealistic. The prices exacted were totally unrealistic and expectations were totally inflated. So this is a good example where we can look at other institutions. You can say, okay, if I want a warning for the housing bubble, where would I have gone back then? What would have told me there was a problem? Who should I have listened to? Mm-hmm. Onto a, a journal article to tell me about it, a newspaper, a blogger, uh, a committee, a survey. What source could I have been using to tell me that there was a problem in the housing market? The fact of the matter is the first actual news that drove actors in finance and in government to act on the basis of learning that there was a problem in the housing market was speculative markets. That was the first source. Now you could say, well, why didn't they learn it earlier? But that's a little unfair. It was still the f- most accurate first source on that issue that drove people to action. But can't you say that, say, people, as we know, um, I think both in Goldman Sachs and in a bunch of other companies uh, 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 actually knew that it's a matter of time That's for the- it to collapse, and yet they were artificially propping it up so that they can sort of bet against it, if you will, short it while their customers losing money, and, and they can sort of artificially prolongate that, that sort of a wrong signaling. The question is, what other institution could have done better? The question isn't perfection. So we're in a world that's complicated. Lots of people have different interests. Lots of people want to hide things. Lots of people don't want to tell us things. Mm-hmm. We go to, as an uninformed public, trying to our best to judge things, what sources can we go to to get the most accurate information as soon as possible? It'll always be true that there might have been somebody out there who knew something and didn't tell. But the question isn't how can we magically make them tell. The question is how can we find a practical, feasible, real institution that will typically get them to tell as soon as possible? Well, I think the answer to that question perhaps could come out of of an analysis of, say, for example, the Canadian example, right? In Canada, we didn't experience uh, that collapse of housing prices at all. Um, actually, it's been only very recently that we've diminished sort of cooling off. Let me just make a real important distinction. Okay. Saying that all the time there should always be no regulation and free markets and, and uh, you know, laissez-faire. This isn't about that. I'm talking about a much more specific question. Yes. Is how can you f- aggregate information, forecast about something? So mm-hmm. this is between the Canadian industry and the regulation and the way it's structured and the U.S. industry and those differences could be very relevant to deciding how the industry should be structured or regulated. Uh, that's a separate question from if you have an industry structured a certain way and it might have a problem, what institution should you use to find out about it fast? Yeah, and, and perhaps you do not uh, allow the sort of uh, uh, going viral of wrong signals in the market or you do not allow that sort of environment in which uh, sort of highly speculative uh, 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 tendencies can sort of blossom to the point in which they can bring down the whole system, perhaps. But 
if there is a problem, how do you want to find out about it is the question. What institution do you want to have to give you early warnings as soon as possible that there is a problem? That's a good point. Very good point, yeah. It's the moment our best institution is. It has a consistent history of giving us the best earliest warnings about these things. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not feeling like I'm, I'm uh, making a very strong or logical, powerful argument here. Uh, and that could be based on one of two things. First, I haven't prepared for that very well, but also perhaps your argument is just much more solid than mine. Um, yeah, uh, hmm. so I have to think about that. But let's, let's go back to the technological singularity. So right. if you were to bet today, uh, what would you say are the chances of the technological singularity in terms of percentage points, in your view? as an expert and an economist. That phrase has so many associations, I first want to clarify what I meant by it. Okay. Um, I would define, in broadest terms, a singularity as a relatively sudden, relatively dramatic increase in, in, in rates of growth of capacity, uh, which can be measured by economic growth rates. Mm -hmm. In those terms, we have two or three previous singularities that we can point back to, uh, the Industrial Revolution is the clearest, most dramatic example. The world economy was doubling roughly every thousand years, and then it started doubling every 15 years. Mm -hmm. it's a, just, you know, on the broadest time scale, it's a dramatic singularity. Mm -hmm. Before that, the farming, re farming revolution was a dramatic singularity. The world economy of, of foragers was doubling every, every quarter million years, and then it started doubling every thousand. So mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a very short time relative to the previous doubling time, a dramatic factor of 100 or more increase in growth rates. Mm -hmm. two spectacular singularities in our history. First of all, they suggest that it could happen again, that it's not inconceivable that within a short time relative to our current doubling time, like over a period of five years, the world economy could go from doubling every 15 years, which it does now, to maybe every month or week. That would be the kind of change you'd be talking about comparable to the Industrial Revolution or the Farming Revolution. Mm -hmm. Completely out of line with recent trends, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I think would count as a singularity. Obviously, the far, by far the most likely causes of that would be some involving some kinds of technology. So you can call it a technological singularity if you like, but that's just another way of acknowledging that technology infuses most everything we do. Mm -hmm. and, and so what, are the, what is the chance of that kind of singularity happening in your view? And what's the sort of timeline, perhaps? So I think it's... Um, more likely than not, or at least 30% chance within the next century. 30% uh, doesn't sound to me too more likely than not. I would say 51% would be, in my view, more likely than not. Right. So so often in these sorts of conversations, uh, there are different standards invoked. Um, one standard is just if you had to bet, what's your subjective chance? And I will say it is more likely than not. Another is what sort of chance could you give a solid argument for that could be that could withstand criticism in an academic or intellectual environment? So mm -hmm. those sorts of standards one often invokes smaller probabilities as the something that you could make a solid argument for. Mm -hmm. Very well. Okay. Yep. Uh, and so you said within thirty percent within the next one hundred years. Right. Now that's a very different probability and very different timeline than. For example, Ray Kurzweil's. Yeah. And, 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 and so how is your framework of reference different 
so that you come up with a different result than his. Because he has a, you know, a bunch of graphs, the exponential laws, the Moore's law, the law of accelerating returns. I think that uh, there are many interesting technology trends, but in some sense they don't matter that much unless they can find a way to connect to the economy and, ha and have leverage inside the economy mm -hmm. and bring people things they value. The standard economic trends over the last century do not suggest we are in a period of accelerating growth. Mm -hmm. Economic levels, we are in a relatively steady growth mode, if not somewhat declining. Uh, there is a lot of discussion about how there's somewhat of a decline in growth at, in the most advanced, you know, uh, developed countries. Mm -hmm. Why we're still more on track for a sort of pretty steady growth. So as an economist, I'm going to accept that. So, I mean, in fact, this is important to, to mention sort of a basic element of my method, I think of myself as accepting conventional conclusions as much as I can and applying them to unusual topics mm -hmm. yeah. as to embracing contrarian views on as many things as I can, which is something I see a lot of futurists seeming to do, mm -hmm. uh, in conventional wisdom on you know everything they can think of. Mm -hmm. So Kurzweil picks, cherry picks a small number of technology trends and say, well, look, those seem to be accelerating. But uh, if you look at the broad overall economic growth trends, they do not seem to be accelerating. And uh, I don't see any sign that they will in the near future. So just to compare and contrast, uh, Kurzweil would say, you know, every year or every two years, we have, you know, uh, doubling of our processing power because of Moore's law or what he calls the law of accelerating returns. And not only that, but that process is even accelerating even faster in its own right. So it used to be a year and a half. Now it's considered to be about 11 months. You, in contrast to that, say, well, there have been, in the way I define the singularity, two previous singularities. One was the uh, agrarian, uh, well, not the agrarian revolution, but the moment when we became from hunter-gatherers farmers the transition to farming society, and then the second one was the Industrial Revolution. And in each of those, we can observe that the economy has uh, grown fundamentally uh, to, the tens, uh, to the trends before that. And for me, a third singularity would be that moment. And the, the way we would observe that would be the fact that currently the economy grows at about uh, the rate of doubling every 15 years. And if such singularity materializes, that could accelerate to the point of doubling every month or week or even shorter periods of time. So is that the major, is that encapsulating the major differences between you and him? Well, I mean, obviously there's a lot of differences, but uh, the fundamental difference is uh, he's focused on some particular tech trends. Yes. Looking at the broad overall economy. Exactly. In time, there were many periods where there were dramatic improvements in particular technologies. Uh, yeah. But your argument is that they don't tend to disseminate throughout the whole system. You know, say, say if we have a doubling of processing power, that doesn't mean that the economy has doubled too. It only means that there's a small percentage of increase, perhaps 1%, perhaps even less of the overall economy. And still overall, the trend of the, the economic growth remains constant within those periods. There were periods in time when the rate, at, the, the price at which we could make aluminum fell by many orders of magnitude in a few mm -hmm. short Yes. In time when the ability to send signals fell by many orders of magnitude in price over a few short years. There were particular technologies that over a short time had dramatic improvements, but they did not make the whole economy suddenly grow faster. Yeah. Particular the high peaks of the of rapid change.
Yeah, so, so that's basically the way I understand your argument, okay, which, which kind of makes sense to me because other critics have pointed out that, you know, a change in a, in, in a subset part of a, of a large system does not necessarily translate to the, the equal rate of change in the system overall, right? So um, let me give a couple of examples that I know you have uh, very interesting opinions on. And, and let's see how, uh, if this can embody our argument even better. So, for example, I know that you do not believe that cheap energy is, not, is going to be a panacea and is going to radically transform our economy and everything around us, like many others have argued, for example. Why is that the case? Why, if, for example, tomorrow we discover fusion or um, a very efficient way of um, uh, utilizing solar energy, that would not have such a radical impact on the economy as many believe it would? Well, it depends on how radical an impact we're talking. Um, e economists think in terms of um, the different industries and different shares of the economy and how important they are. And we use prices as an important measure of how important things are because, uh, you know, if we ask what would make your life much better, if we take some small part of your budget, say toothpaste, and we say, the toothpaste industry is just going to radically improve over the next decade. You'll be able to get toothpaste a hundred times cheaper than you do now. You'll, you might say, yeah, that'll be nice. But because you spend so little on toothpaste, you don't envision a great, huge improvement in the, your quality of life. Because if toothpaste were really important, you would be spending a lot more on it. Now, if you say you spend uh, three, four hours a day watching TV, and I tell you TV will be 10 times better. Well, now, now your life might be substantially better because a big chunk of your day is going to get a lot better because it's something you spend a lot more on. So similarly, principle holds for the economy as a whole. Dramatic improvements in things we hardly spend much money on are unlikely to make everything a lot better because the fact that we spend very little money on it is a signal that it's not very important. If it were more important, we would be spending more money on it. So is energy the TV or the toothpaste? Because the toothpaste, we actually don't spend that much money on energy. It's, it's a dramatic thing. It's at least an easy thing people to understand. They get that everything needs gas, everything needs electricity. Therefore, if that stuff got more expensive, they'd have to pay more. But they don't quite notice that they hardly pay anything for electricity or gas. It's really a tiny fraction of their budget. But how about that multiplier effect that uh, people like Peter Diamandis often uh, argue about? So, for example, uh, and even Bill Gates um, himself, um, who is... Uh, uh, has gone on the record in, in saying that if you want to have a single uh, pivotal change, uh, the best way to, in, in our civilization, the best way to do is by uh, uh, creating a source of cheap, abundant energy. Why? Because, um, you know, it would resolve the energy scarcity issue, that's one thing, but then it would resolve uh, other issues such as, for example, the accessibility to fresh water because we would have the capability to desalinate water. It would, uh, therefore, uh, resolve the issue of, of, for example, infectious disease, because, as we know, most of the infectious disease that people suffer in the third world today has come from uh, the sources of unclean uh, water. Then uh, you would... Uh, diminish uh, the costs of, for example, health care uh, or, or uh, preventive medicine, uh, uh, then you, you would uh, consequently have, you know, not simply the saving, and, and you can go on and on and on about uh, the, the sort of multiplier effect that energy supposedly has throughout the system. 
right? So you would not only reduce the cost of energy, but of all those other industries. So if you have cheap water for drinking and you diminish uh, infectious disease, you would also have cheap water for irrigation purposes and all those. There may be multiplier effects, but they're not a multiple of a thousand. I mean, give me a plausible multiple here. Maybe a multiple of three if you want to be generous, but uh, the, the fact that we spend very little on energy means that we don't see very many gains from more energy even in water. We don't actually spend that much on water in, in rich countries. Now, poor countries might spend more on water, but the fact that they're poor is part of the, the signal to the world that we don't think they're very important. Otherwise, we'd be spending more money on them. That is, uh, so in terms of the overall world economy, the people who are poor, giving them more is for them good, but it's not very good for the world economy as usually measured because the fact we don't pay, buy very much from them is, a, is saying that we don't think we get much out of them. So having things go better for them doesn't help the rest of us very much. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of disagreeing here with you on that because it, it brings to, to my mind cases like, for example, the Congo. Uh, which, uh, according to some estimates, actually has the natural resources to feed about 22 times its current population because they're incredibly rich in, in all those incredible ways. And, and still they're failing to do even that. And, and you can go into the geopolitics and the, 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 the sort of uh, all the reasons, you know, from colonization onwards, if you will, about why this is the situation and even the structure of the markets which tends to undervalue certain resources and, and, and perhaps even is uh, creating incentives for uh, contributing to those uh, dire circumstances there in order to keep the prices uh, lower and accessibility uh, for, to us this higher. example of where economists know a lot and they have, it's important to listen to them and understand um, for a place to be rich and prosperous, you need a lot more than natural resources. In fact, in our world economy, we spend a very small fraction on natural resources exactly because it's not very important. It's uh, far more important are all the other things that make an economy valuable, uh, skilled workers, infrastructure, institutions, rule of law. Those are the kinds of things that a place like the Congo lacks. And uh, if they had those things and no natural resources, they'd be vastly better off because they could just buy the natural resources from somebody else because it's cheap because people don't actually care very much about natural resources because, in fact, without the other things, natural resources don't get you that much. Mm -hmm. Can you give me a, just a rough idea about what part of our uh, uh, global economy is energy and what part is natural resources, roughly, if you can't? They're each probably 5% or less. So total of 10 Okay, so, yeah. Okay, I see. And, and how do we measure the growth of the economy? When you speak about the growth of the economy, are you talking about GDP? Uh, GDP is an imperfect measure, but it's a commonly used one. So, um, you know, it... The, That's precisely the point that I'm bringing it for. Of course. Again, you have to just compare it with what other measures do you have as, as a substitute. Uh, people continue to use it because even though it's imperfect, they still judge it to be better than the alternatives at the moment. Again, it's a matter of imperfect alternatives and choosing. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the, the, the United Nations Human Index or something like that, which also takes into... Right. But those tend to like pick a small number of indicators and, and weigh them together. Mm -hmm. And is trying to systematically count as much of the economy as it can. I mean, it still misses some things, but... I think you're better off 
augmenting GDP with, with some other indicators rather than replacing it entirely with, with uh, a small number of indicators. But there's a whole research agenda in you know, improving GDP, and, and I think we should put more money in that. I think it's promising and very useful. But uh, the, you know, the key idea of GDP is just to look at all the different things we buy and how much we pay for them and add that up and then try to be clever about comparing that across time as prices change and the quantities of things change. But mm-hmm. We get that roughly right. The, the main problem is judging, first of all, uh, quality changes uh, in products. You know, we buy the same. We buy so many computers. How much better are these computers than last year's computers? How much better are these years' tech? And then, of course, all the other things we don't buy, and making sure we think about well, how much would we pay for them if we did buy them? So, leisure is an important one. Nature, uh, cultural, uh, pride, even uh, those are all things that people value, and they would pay for if they if they could and had to. And uh, GDP would be better if it included those measures more accurately. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, GDP does give us the rough concepts of, you know, Botswana is just a lot less rich than the U.S., and GDP tells you that, and it tells you that people in the U.S. aren't really willing to pay that much for people from Botswana for things they do because they don't find them very valuable. And that even the things we leave off of GDP don't change that fair fact very much. It, GDP does roughly get that right. Mm-hmm. But, for example, take another example again, uh, and, of course, uh, I'm, I'm, again, probably showing my Canadian, pro-Canadian bias here, but if I remember correctly, in terms of GDP measures, the United States would be better off than Canada uh, in terms of GDP, but I would argue that that, that, that would be a false uh, representation of the reality on the ground because I would claim that uh, because GDP has poor uh, representation of the distribution effect of, of that wealth among the members of the society, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, Canada may have a little bit less per capita of overall GDP still um, hides the fact, in my opinion, that the average Canadian, uh, um, roughly speaking, would be a little bit better off than the average American. Okay, but GDP isn't trying to answer that question of whether the average person is better off. Uh, it's, it's answering a different question. It, it does a decent job of that different question. Um, I mean, bec- it's the standard thing, you know, because there's a number available, people use it all the time and throw it around, and mm-hmm. uh, they don't uh, qualify it as often as they could or should. Uh, but still, uh, we're, we're in the process of developing other measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, fundamentally, GDP is trying to count things by how much they cost. And so it obviously is fundamentally not going to be measuring what we call the diminishing marginal utility of wealth. That is, yeah. if rich people don't find money as personally valuable. GDP is just ignoring that entirely. Mm-hmm. Okay, Robin, I've been basically showing my sort of lack of uh, economic knowledge and profound ignorance on the topic here for almost an hour now. So it's time for us to move on to... Um, uh, a little bit more technological topics here for the, the little bit of time that we have left. So let's talk about uh, your ideas um, of the impact of the technological singularity on economic, uh, on the economy in general, and then if you want to narrow that down um, more particularly in the case of uh, mind uploads. How would that play through the, through the system and basically uh, if you can sort of perhaps walk us through the way you view that. Well, uh, if we just say there'll be a singularity and a singularity means a sudden increase in growth rates, uh, there's a few things we c- can say about that. There's a few conclusions we can draw merely from that fact alone. 
But most of the conclusions we'd want to draw are from knowing, well, what in particular is going to cause such a big change? If you had known the, that a big growth rate would happen at the Industrial Revolution time, but you didn't know that industry would be the cause, maybe you thought it would be aliens, maybe you thought it would be monsters from the sea, I mean... Cheap energy, maybe you thought wrongly. Right. Um, so you, in order to make more detailed predictions, you'd want to have a more detailed concept of what the cause was. So uh, if there's going to be this sudden growth rate that shows up in the, in the future, uh, obviously one big thing to notice is that um, you know, at that point in time, um, your investments will grow much quicker. That is, if, if the economy doubles every week, then your investments can double every week. So uh, you'll want to be ready for that and then have a diversified portfolio to gain from that. Uh, when growth is faster, it means uh, transport is more expensive. Uh, if it takes a month to ship things over the ocean and the economy is doubling every week, well, then you'll be tempted to produce locally rather than uh, ship from far away. Uh, because the what about inflation? If the economy is growing at such an incredibly fast pace, wouldn't there be tons of inflation? Well, inflation is just by definition the difference between the growth rate in the value of money and the growth rate of the actual of the value of things, the price of things. So uh, you can have a high inflation or low inflation uh, with a high or low growth rate. That they're not tied together at all. Mm. Really? Okay. Um, okay, so keep going with your argument. Uh, I can't say very much more about the consequences of a sudden increase in growth until we talk about what's likely to be the cause. Now, one thing we can say is that clearly with the past singularities, there was usually a fundamental mode change in terms of what was valuable in the economy. So that means you should be afraid or concerned that the kinds of things you own now that are valuable will become less valuable in this new world. So you want to be especially eager to diversify your assets prior to this transition so that whatever becomes valuable in this new world, uh, you have some of it. So mm -hmm. prosper. Uh, overall, clearly, if the, if the world economy is growing very fast, somebody's got something. <laughs> somebody's prospering with something, but it might not be you if you don't have whatever it is they'll value. So clearly, diversify your assets. Be ready to own whatever might be valuable. But to go further, you'll want to have a more specific model of what could cause such a singularity. Yeah, so before we go to that step, so basically your advice, your tip to people here is basically di diversify your investments because chances are that as the economy grows, perhaps wages might fall, but uh, investments such as, for example, real estate and, and, and so on uh, would be the one that generate wealth for people, not wages per se. So people who have those investments would be very well. So in fact, I think that the thing, the transition that's likely to happen is likely to lower wages. But the more general claim that just something's going to change doesn't depend on that. It's just the idea that there'll be a big transition and there'll be a big change in what's valuable and you better just diversify your assets so you can own whatever it is that turns out to be valuable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's narrow that down to the next step here. and. What do you think would be that mover, that primary cause that sort of triggers that effect? So it's probably not going to be energy because energy is a tiny fraction of the economy, not space colonization because, or under the ocean colonization because that's slow and also brings us stuff we don't pay very much for. The, no natural resources either. Right. The big thing we pay a lot for is human labor, workers, smart workers. Mm-hmm. That's a huge part of the economy. If you could find a way to substitute for that, you've got an enormous revolution. What's the percentage that we spend on labor? So we said that those resources were 5% each, so 10 at the most. 70. 70. So by a factor of 7, 
or 14 if we're comparing it to each. Wow, okay. A large fraction of the total. 70 is a big fraction of the total. Yes, absolutely. So if there was a way you could substitute for human workers, that is a wholesale change in the economy. It's, it's also just basically true that over the last century, um, we've grown the economy in terms of labor and capital, capital including machines and, and organizations, and we've long known how to grow capital fast, but it reaches diminishing returns. If you, if you mix as many machines and they have the same number of people, you don't get twice the product. You, you get a little bit more. So we've, we've just neglected, not neglected, we've stopped growing machines at the point where we said, no, more doesn't actually help us that much because we only have so many people. So people have been the thing holding back the growth of the economy at a fundamental level for the last century. In order to grow the economy, we mostly had to develop new technology that makes us better able to use machines and things to work better. Mm -hmm. Economies, in addition to growing by improving their technology, they can just grow simply by having more stuff. So when Europe spread into the Americas and used lots more farmland, that was a way the economy could grow, not by, say, improving technology, but just by having more inputs. Um, but in the last century, it's been the limiting factor has been the number of people that we just haven't been growing people very fast, and that's mm -hmm. how fast the economy can grow. Mm -hmm. When we have something that can substitute for people and you can make a lot of them fast and make as many as anybody can pay for, that allows the economy to grow much faster. Mm -hmm. And what, what do you think uh, that would be? Would that be robots or mind uploads? So mind uploads are robots. <laughs> uh, so the question is, if you could have in a machine that you make in a factory and it could be as smart as a person and substitute for per people and doing lots of different tasks that people do, what's the most likely first way to make a box like that? Where would you get it? Mm -hmm. Now, I was an artificial intelligence researcher for nine years and uh, that was a while ago and I've somewhat tracked the field and uh, writing programs from scratch that are intelligent is hard and our progress has been slow. Mm -hmm. and look at current rates of progress and project it forward, I say it's got to be several centuries. Uh, yes, eventually that will re work, but it's taking a very long time and will continue to take a very long time. So you think we are centuries away from creating artificial intelligence by programming? That's right. Uh, in fact, more concretely, uh, I was a researcher in a particular field uh, 20 years ago, and um, I asked other people to ask, judge the same question I judged, which was, look at your field 20 years ago, where it is today, think about how far it would have to go to reach human-level intelligence, and ask, what percentage along the way have we gone, come, mm -hmm. from 20 years ago to today toward the goal? And the consistent answer I get is 5% or less, maybe 10% at the most. I also ask, are we accelerating? Has growth sped up or slowed down over those 20 years? Usually they say about the same or decelerating, not accelerating. They're exceptional fields, but for the most part, that's what the experts in artificial intelligence that I've talked to have said about their field and what they've seen in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. that, that kind of sort of meshes well with, with my interviews with uh, David Ferrucci, who was uh, the, the head behind Watson and, and other people uh, like Ramesnam and uh, who was behind Bing um, and so on. So... Uh, if we can't program that AI per se, then what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to copy software that works and port it rather than rewrite it from scratch. So mm -hmm. inside each of our heads is software that works. Yeah. 
And the simple concept, which is hard to execute, is to take an actual human brain and scan it in precise spatial and chemical resolution and then have working models of how the individual cells work such that you can map the scan data into a model for each cell and make a computer model of all the cells. And you turn that model on, and if the model of the cells are good enough and your scan data is good enough, the whole thing should be a model of the brain, and it should have the same input-output behavior. That is, you talk to it, it talks back, you ask it to do something, and maybe it does it for you. Mm-hmm. And and so, okay, so basically that that's in a way what Ray Kurzweil argues, that, you know, if we are able to sort of decipher the human brain, that would provide us with the best point of reference to create an artificial brain. But you're saying simply by copying and pasting is, is the, the best recipe. It's crude. Uh, it's sloppy. Uh, maybe eventually we can do better, but it's the most likely thing to work first. Mm-hmm. It requires three technologies, and we can project trend lines for those three technologies. There's mm-hmm. forward uh, things to think about and project. It's not based on some magic discovery we haven't found yet. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we can project computer technology that looks like, you know, half a century should be enough. Uh, if not, a century should be plenty. The scanning technology is probably going to be ready first. It's even faster. We're, we're almost there in a sense now. Uh, it's the modeling of the cells is the, the hardest part, it seems. Um, but uh, we hardly spend anything on trying that. So mm-hmm. if, if people just realize that they could make trillions of dollars by doing that, and they vastly increase the amount of resources that went into cell modeling, uh, progress would speed up dramatically. So basically your argument is that uh, the most likely way of creating more workers, more labor at a very uh, cheap price compared to what we have right now um, would be by creating uh, mind uploads or emulations. Yes. And and, and then uh, wouldn't that be in a way like creating slave labor? Well, it depends on whether you enslave them. The same way for any other labor, uh, you know, we can enslave labor now. Uh, slavery is possible now, and it was possible in the past, and it's happened in the past, mm-hmm. and again in the future. But the uh, ex- the mechanical form of the labor, de- labor doesn't determine that you should enslave it. Okay, so walk me through your your sort of argument and through the sort of the incentives, the mechanism, and the most likely outcomes that you foresee, and perhaps even if you could touch on some of the ethics around it. Big topic, so uh, I'm not sure how much time we have left, but we'll, we'll start. I think uh, that we have about uh, 18 or 19 minutes based on what you told me. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the basic uh, idea of my style of analysis is to try to sort of take our very standard social science and apply it to this unusual assumption. And uh, that's what I've been trying to do. And uh, in particular... I will slant the analysis toward uh, looking for the keys under the lamppost in the sense of uh, looking more at scenarios which are easier to analyze uh, and where I can draw more conclusions. And that will be scenarios where things are more like they are today and also where economic analysis works better, uh, i.e. when there's more competition uh, or more decentralized adoption. I also think that's reasonably likely, but still, um, I'm just basically taking standard economics and applying it to the assumption that at some point this technology is available. You know, firms can sell it at a price. 
Uh, people can buy it. Uh, people will be competing to make best use of it. Uh, they will uh, look for different variations that are more efficient. And uh, projecting the consequences of that forward through into what the economy looks like. Mm-hmm. So uh, paint us the picture. What does it look like? Well, first thing it looks like is a population that's vastly larger. So these emulations, they are productive like people, so they replace people for the most part, but they vastly uh, overwhelm people. That is, instead of 7 billion people, you could have a quadrillion of these emulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, their costs would fall rapidly in terms of the hardware to make them, because, just like computer costs are falling. The hardware to make these things would fall. They would get more efficient, energy efficient, spatial efficient. Mm-hmm. And because there would be so many a vast number of them, they'd be so cheap to make, wages would have to fall to the cost of making another one. Uh, of course, in addition to needing the raw hardware, you'll need a mind that's willing to move into that hardware and to be trained to do whatever tasks that's uh, required. And that won't be most minds necessarily. Out of the 7 billion people, maybe the only 10,000 would be willing to become an emulation or to be trained to do, uh, I don't know, cleaning toilets or whatever it is that the emulations will be uh, hired to do. But it only takes a few of them willing to do it, and then you can make trillions of copies of each one. And so uh, we don't need a very large fraction of people or emulations willing to take on a wide range of jobs in order for them to be many, many trillions of them doing a wide range of jobs. So then what we get is a strong competition among these emulations to most efficiently take on different kinds of tasks and do them for a wage so that they can earn a living and enjoy their life and have leisure time to do other things. And so we get a vast increase of the number of these emulations who are more work-focused than us, who are more competitively, uh, their lives are more orient, you know, competitively structured because they're more at the margin of surviving. And yeah, exactly. That not that a point of concern to say that because we have such a large supply of those emulations, the 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 wages would probably be very much at the border of survival for them. Yes. Uh, and, and that would also, by the way, tend to bring the human wages very much low because Absolutely. living embodied humans would be competing for many of those jobs with them. And so wouldn't that lose the competition? So humans will quickly simply lose their ability to make much money competing wage-wise. They'll need to own real estate, stocks, other things. And even a small, tiny amount of those things could make them ridiculously wealthy. So they shouldn't worry too much about that as long as the economy continues to you know, like not like have, have a war or revolution that expropriates their uh, holdings. But isn't the revolution likely because you said, you know, if you have a small fraction of those things, but those things are sentient, sentient things, and, and uh, they can push for their rights. Uh, they can change their minds too, by the way. They can accept a certain job or position, but after a certain period they can revoke it. Or they may want to push for unionizing, etc., which basically is the human history, the history of all sentient beings. We demand to see more of the fruits of our labors, I believe. And, and wouldn't that be sort of an explosive situation, a situation in which – and also, by the way, uh, lots of people – if we look at nowadays, most people don't really own stock. Most people don't have good investments. Most people, even in the advanced world, are basically living from – Paycheck to paycheck, even in Canada. You're raising a whole bunch of different issues all at once, so so I hope we can get to all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So I'll stop right here then. Uh, You know, so, you know, a lot depends on whether you want to focus on humans and how they do in this world or the emulations. 
the humans will become quickly a small marginal part. So if, if humans are trying to own everything and enslave everybody else, there's certainly a great potential for that to end and end badly. So I don't recommend it. <laughs> I certainly would recommend that humans own a small fraction of things and survive in the margin and thrive in the margin, but not try to run everything and own everything and to, to allow the, the emulations to own themselves and to be free agents and to make their own choices. Uh, and that would quickly lead to the humans only owning a small fraction of the wealth, but it still could be huge. The emulations will, of course, each be trying to do the best they can for themselves to find the best job and the best position in the world. Uh, and sometimes they'll try to gain those advantages by organizing collectively. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, this e economics has a whole economics of labor to analyze how this works and what happens. And uh, we can apply all those tools to predict what happens in this case. We, those tools also uh, predict what's happened in the past. Uh, we can understand historical labor markets uh, all the way back in terms of, of these sorts of competition. I mean, a key point is that uh, people were poor 500 years ago, not because they didn't have labor unions. They were poor because the economy grew very slowly and the population grew quickly enough so that uh, the, the wages fell to a more of a subsistence level. That was why people were poor. But you can have environment in which the economy grows pretty fast and people are still ridiculously poor, can't you? You can. That, 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 in fact, is my prediction. My prediction is, in fact, of an economy that's growing ridiculously fast and is in total ridiculously wealthy, but still, on the margin, individual people have an income just barely enough so that they can survive. So that, 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 that's a very <laughs> horrible future, isn't it? Well... You have to ask what you care about in the future, of course, or what you care about in any society. Well, I care about not barely surviving. I care about flourishing and prospering, right? So if I'm just barely surviving, that's not the kind of society I want to be a part of. There's several issues here. Uh, one is, you know, the numbers question. Uh, if you have a small number of people who are really wealthy or a very large number of people who are modest of modest income, which world is better? Would you take the world we have now and replace it with a million wealthy people? Would you actually be willing to do that? Is that a better world? One million really wealthy people versus seven billion uh, people who are okay, but not ridiculously wealthy? Uh, that's an ethical judgment I invite you to consider. I think that a, a vast world of a vast number of creatures, each of whom is okay with their life and reasonably happy, if not ridiculously wealthy, is a very nice world. So, but can you be reasonably happy at the border of survival is my issue here. That's the second issue to come to. Let's think about what their lives are actually like and judge it and then decide whether we think this is a horrible or a wonderful future. So let's think more concretely about what their lives are like specifically. And that's what I've been trying to do is to try to go to a fair bit of detail what the lives are specifically like and to help be the basis for such judgment. You see, let me stop you here for a second. What I'm coming across here is how much not social scientist am I and how much you are, right? Because you have a very structured, very well-framed and sort of coherent and cohesive way of thinking and approaching things. I'm a philosopher, so I think maybe even my engineering fr friend might be right uh, in calling me a bullshitter indirectly in the fact that my approach to those things is a lot more scattered, a lot more inspiration-based and less cohesive and less structured. And I can see how there's a lot of benefit in what you're doing. So go on. Just wanted to, to make that observation. Uh, did you happen to see the movie recently called Zero Dreams of Sushi? Mm, uh, I think I only saw the trailer for it, but I didn't see the movie. 
it's it's a movie celebrating a particular sushi chef, and uh, the sushi chef basically works all the time making sushi and has for many many decades. Yeah, and uh, his life is obsessively sushi centered. Yes, so it's celebrating that person and his life. Mm-hmm. The point is, it's possible to have a life that's very work centered and that's very fulfilling. It might not be what you would like, perhaps, or what many people would like, but it's certainly within the human range of capacity to have a work, a life where you're spending a large fraction of the time working and you enjoy it and it's a life worth living. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in this future, I'm forecasting, they are much more work centered than we are. They spend, so the average adult in the United States spends 24 hours a week working. So I kind of don't believe that. I think the average adult in the United States works like 60 or 70 hours a week. The number is 24. Now, you're, of course, averaging over people who are, of course, this is employment, so it's housewives or whatever are not uh, counting as working. Retired people are in there. Uh, so the point is, our society, uh, most of the time, you know, 170 hours in a week, we're only spending 24 of the working. We're a really small fraction of our time is spent uh, working at employment. So for these emulations, I'm predicting it's much higher, maybe up to 80 hours a week working, although that's still you know, not the majority of their hours per week, but it's still a lot more than we work. But that, but that statistics here is totally going against everything that I know about the United States economy. I think that the average person in the U.S. takes only about a week worth of vacation per year. They work at least one job for most of the time, and I think uh, that's one of the differences between U.S. and Europe, for example. In Europe, I think we have the average people working about 35, 36 hours per week, and in the United States, it's almost double. I think you're probably thinking of the average worker or something like that, as opposed to the average adult. Oh, okay. The average full-time worker in particular. Okay. So, you know, uh, but the the basic point, uh, not to get too much into detail, is that, you know, with time, compared to our ancestors, we spend less time working, we're richer, we can afford to, and we have a lot more time and leisure. And so a world where people are working a lot can often seem to us like some sort of horrible sweatshop, but people don't have to have a horrible life if they're working, if the, like is, if the work is something they enjoy and, uh, and engaging. Um, the other thing to notice about this emulation world is these emulations um, don't need medicine. Uh, they don't even need food. Uh, they will not need to be in pain or even debilitated. Their energy levels do not need to degrade with age. In terms of physical sustenance and physical pain, uh, none of that needs to be an issue. In fact, if they most say most work would be office work, 80% say, and then the office work, their virtual reality office environment could be spectacularly beautiful, comfortable, enriching compared to the ordinary worlds that we sit in. Uh, they will, of course, this would be a backdrop to them. They'll be focused on their particular work and doing the particular things they're best at. But in terms of the kind of the quality of the leisure they have, even if they only have two hours of leisure a day, it'll be spectacularly high quality leisure because a very large economy can support a lot of specialization in making a spectacularly enriching and satisfying virtual reality. Someone would say you're painting a very utopian workplace. Well, I'm, I'm trying to be honest about the positives and the negatives. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I've, I've just been reading uh, Studs Terkel's Working, for example, uh, going through you know all the descriptions of work life and, and what people think of it. And I'm you know I'm actually somewhat encouraged in that people have a lot of complaints, but it's almost always about status and respect. 
that they want other people to respect them for their work and to give attention and to, and to admit that they've, they've contributed something and they get some recognition for it. And that really bugs them when they don't get enough status or respect for the hard work that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the actual work itself doesn't often really bother people that much. They're okay with working hard and working hours as long as it's got something to do and, and it gets some compensation and respect and it has a position in society and they're contributing. Uh, I think humans are certainly a sub- substantial subset of us. So one key thing to talk about is we're going to select from the 7 billion humans, the few hundred even, that are the most suited for this new world, and then we'll make trillions of copies of them. Well, Robin, I have to say I, I want to explore every like so much more your whole uh, paradigm of, 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 of mind uploads economy if you will, uh, that you have in mind. Unfortunately, we only have about three or four minutes left here, and I, I'm afraid that's entirely my fault because I, I sort of spent a lot of time on the sort of the generalities on economics and about you, and so I sort of dragged it way too long perhaps this time. Um, so I'm trying to figure out a way to wrap this up. So just very quickly in a minute, if we can, do you not worry about, um, well, in your paper here, you say that those mind, those M's, as you call the emulations, they would have diminishing uh, flexibility of, of learning as time goes on. Because, um, as we know, you know, people who are uh, young people who are born, they have uh, very flexible minds. It's easy for them to learn. And as we age, you know, it's harder for us to learn new things. And you're saying that the same feature would perhaps be exhibited by the M's. So what happens when uh, that sort of idyllic uh, work skill that a certain M is very best suited for is no longer needed by the economy? So uh, an emulation that um, does an important job, a useful job for a while, uh, produces a lot of value, um, that can, you know, buy them some leisure. It can also buy them a retirement. Um, after they are productively working, uh, they could still exist. They could still enjoy their life and, uh, you know, their grandchildren, etc. But uh, they wouldn't be as much demand. That's the concept of retirement. It's a concept in our society. It would be a concept in their society. So retirement can be much cheaper for them because they can run at different speeds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Today, a retiree costs nearly as much as an ordinary person. So if you work for 20 years and then retire for 20 years, well, we need to pay a lot to retire. These emulations, they could run at a speed, say, a thousand times slower when they retire. And the cost would then be a thousand times less per day to support them. So they could be, you know, of course, they don't have to run that slowly. So maybe if they saved more for retirement, they could run faster and have a more active life. But subjectively, the difference is just the world around you would buzz around faster if you have a slower retirement. Yeah, that kind of sounds a little discriminatory to me, if not a lot. Uh, because, you know, why would you be running 100 times faster than me? Because you can afford it. So it's, it's about what money you have to afford these things. Yeah. Which is your concept of our world, I think you'll admit. Uh, people who have more money get more stuff. Except- no, I, I admit that entirely, but... Is that that's the way the world is, but is that the way it ought to be? Well, my first priority in this analysis is to predict the way the world will be, 
And then we can on the margin talk about one ways to shift things one way or another. I do think futurists often get a little too caught up in being hopeful and, and trying to paint a picture of what they would like, uh, as opposed to trying to be as realistic as possible what would be to happen. And then how on. about a different slant on that take? Uh, we try to imagine the future we would like to have, and then we try to steer the sort of course of history towards that outcome rather than be realistic and sort of let the stream of things take us the way they would. If you're on a big boat and you want to steer it toward Hong Kong, you need to know which way it's going now in order to turn it left or right. Absolutely, yes. I'm trying to tell you where you, the boat's going now. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, and, and you might well be right. I agree with you entirely, but I'm just thinking also, if I don't think that that's the optimum outcome, how do I create, how do we create an environment in which we can take control in such a way that we can produce even better outcomes? Because, and that's perhaps the bullshitter dreamer part of me who wants to come out with the optimum ethical outcomes rather than, you know, the most economically efficient ones. Thing in economics, economists are continually making policy recommendations about which direction changes would make things better, mm-hmm. but it's on the basis of a very specific concrete model of the way the world actually is so that you can look at the details and make a projection about how to make it better. Mm-hmm. If you have a good sense of how the world is, you're not going to be in a very good position to, to recommend how to change it to make it better. Yeah, I agree entirely with you. That's why I believe uh, being educated on, on the principles of economics is vital for any policymaker and even philosopher. Uh, the only thing is that it's been 10 years for me, so I apparently need to sort of re-educate myself again. Um, um, Robin, unfortunately, we we run out of time. Um, I have the feeling that I terribly messed up our interview here today. So I want to give you uh, the last word here so that you can perhaps, uh, before that, where can people find more information about you and your work? My name is Robin, R-O-B-I-N, Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N. I'm lucky in that if you Google my name, I show up first, so uh, you won't have any trouble finding me. Mm -hmm. Okay, and if you have a single message that you would like all of our viewers and listeners to take away from this hour-and-a-half-long interview with you today, what would you like that to be? Uh, Probably just the message I just told you. The details matter. Uh, Somebody needs to be paying attention to the social details, and for that you need some social science. Not enough just to know how computers work or how differential equations work to think about the future. Not enough just to know what you wish would happen. Uh, you need to know how society works. So do you think that economics is better suited to provide that answer than, for example, say, sociology or political science or so on? Uh, I mean, I respect all the social sciences. I find them all valuable, and I draw from all of them. So I don't think of myself so much as an economist as a social scientist, but I am you know, by profession an economist, and I certainly uh, find it among the rest the most useful. (laughs) Okay, fantastic. Well, Professor Hansen, thank you very much for taking so much time of your day to be with us today.